Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com ACAST. That's greenlight.com ACAST. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, a.k.a. problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing, you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problem solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. Summer is here. Pack your bag with sunscreen, your emotional sport water bottle, and that steamy bee treat. But wait, don't stop there. This year, there's a new kind of essential that's right at your fingertips. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods, goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut. To explore the bounds of your pleasure, new content is released every week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. Dipsy offers a modern approach to romance through high quality and captivating audio fiction. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. We're living in an extraordinary moment, and the American people are not stupid. We're not children. We're adults. But we're treated by the political system like we're children, and we're talked to like we're children. And I think that this campaign is an adult campaign. Mm. And I'm submitting to the American people a campaign based not just on what I can do for you, but also what together we can do for our country and what we can do for the world. And I think these are serious times, and it demands the attention of serious people. And everybody has it within us to be serious. This is Sarah from the left and Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. We're so excited today to share with you our conversation with Democratic presidential candidate Marianne Williamson. Before we do, a couple of announcements. We're going to be discussing our book, I Think You're Wrong, But I'm Listening, A Guide to Grace-Filled Political Conversation at Florence Christian Church, my home church, on April 27th. 
It would warm my heart to see many of you there. We'll put the link about that in the show notes. Also, our interview with Angie Brown Elkin at Chatology is up. She was a little trepidatious about talking politics on her podcast. So actually, I feel like her trepidation led to a really good conversation. So check that out. I think so, too. And we know that everyone is thinking about the Mueller report today. I am live tweeting my read of the Mueller report. But that is the thing. We here at Pantsy Politics are committed to reading the thing ourselves before we talk about it. And it's 400 pages long. So we're going to get on that. And we'll be back here Tuesday discussing it in full. And if you would like some on-the-spot analysis, you can go to Patreon and become a supporter to that receives the nightly nuance. And you can follow my little Twitter thread. So we want to warn you before we head into this conversation with Marianne Williamson that we had a pretty intense discussion of addiction that encompassed suicide and just want to let you know that that's coming. So if you don't want to hear that part of the conversation, when I ask her about addiction, you might just skip ahead a little bit. But I think it's important and I think it's indicative of how she thinks and approaches things. I will just read to you from Marianne's bio. If you don't know her work, I'm really sorry that you don't. It's amazing. (laughs) But I'm glad you're being introduced to her today. And she says about herself, spiritual audiences haven't always been happy with my political activism and political audiences haven't always been happy with my spiritual convictions. But the combination of the two is who I am. My career has not been a traditional one, but it has been successful. I have been a teacher of transformational wisdom, a successful businesswoman and a political activist. I have counseled leaders ranging from business to culture to politics. I have been blessed to participate in many nonprofit activities and speaking for various charitable causes over the years. In 2014, I ran for Congress in Los Angeles and came in fourth out of a field of 16 in a jungle primary. LA District 33 ended up with the venerable Ted Lieu in that position, so I consider it an all's well that ends well experience in my life. And that generosity of spirit you will hear in this conversation. Marianne has published 12 books, and her newest book, A Politics of Love, will be out soon. So without further ado, we are just delighted to share Marianne Williamson with you. We are so thrilled to be joined by Marianne Williamson, best-selling author, leader, someone we both have listened to and just been guided by in our lives for so long. And we are so excited to have you here today as a presidential candidate. I would say that as someone who's a longtime, like I said, follower of yours and of your work, I have to tell you that, you know, you have one of the the more unique biographies, I think, of a very crowded presidential field. But I will tell you, when we started talking about you with regards to politics is when you did an interview with the Goop podcast. And as someone who's been listening to your voice and listening to your words for so long, I was like pushed back a little bit like, what is this new side? I'm sure it's not new to you, but to your followers, like this very new, forceful, moral leadership in the political space that you put forth in that interview. You know, if I'd been smart, I thought, man, I think she might be running for president because I think you were broadcasting it in that interview. So tell us about how you got from best-selling author in really your space to this very new space for you. Well, I think life doesn't have the kind of spaces 
that mm. we have delineated for ourselves. So true. Uh, and I wrote a book called Healing the Soul of America in 1997. So in 1997, I wrote a book talking about the corporatocracy and wealth inequality and mass mm. incarceration, all these things that are that are stage four cancers today, but were already stage one cancers back then. Mm-hmm. So this really is not a new conversation for me. Yeah. If I'm giving a course in miracles lecture, then I, you know, there are places where it's not appropriate to bring in certain things. But anybody who was ever present for uh, Q and A, where somebody asked a question about politics, certainly knew that quote unquote side of me. I had written Healing the Soul of America, and I ran for Congress in 2016. Right. So this is not something that's a new side of Marianne. It's just that it's appropriate or not appropriate to bring into certain settings, but that doesn't mean it's not part of my uh, panoply of interests and activism. So for the people who haven't been following you, who are hearing your name for the first time, how do you present? I think you are one of the best equipped to present the complexity of a person inside a presidential candidacy. You know what I mean? It's opposed to that sort of one-dimensional thing we're used to. Because you have that experience, because you're so good at talking in that way, how do you present that to people who are hearing about you for the first time? Well, that's why people such as yourselves are so important, Mm. because it has to do with the context with which I'm presented. People who have read my work, such as yourselves, who might at first go, whoa, I don't understand, and then go, oh, I get it. It makes all the sense in the world. You know, Mm -hmm. Gandhi said, anybody who thinks religion doesn't have anything to do with politics doesn't understand religion. And as I've been saying for a long time, there is no spiritual or religious path anywhere that gives anyone a pass on addressing the suffering of other sentient beings. Mm -hmm. I found at Project Angel Food serving patients with AIDS and other life-challenging illnesses back in the last in the late 80s. I've worked on hunger and poverty issues. I've long been vocal about this kind of white bread capitalist spirituality that has emerged over the last few years that has no sense of, of political or social responsibility as part of it. I mean, I've expressed my horror with that for a long yeah. time. So once again, people such as yourselves who know the work, it might take a few minutes and then you go, oh, well, of course. That is, you perfectly described my exact process <laughs> through that interview. You have a moment and then you're like, oh, yeah. And that you're right. This is what we talk about here all the time. There are other people who might not have known my work. Like there was an article today on vice.com, something about Marianne Williamson putting faith back in the Democratic Party. I I put it on my Twitter and and Facebook if you're interested. The second category is is people who didn't know my work, but who are genuine intellectuals and genuinely Mm -hmm. open and who have given me a chance and then go, yes, it makes sense. The third category, however, are people, you know, there's a term in AA, a phrase contempt prior to investigation Mm. who just have a filter and they're sticking to it and it's prejudgment and you're a new age guru and what are you doing here? Mm. But I hope, I mean, I did have my CNN town hall last week and I'm on your program today and I'm on MSNBC and CNN next week. So uh, it's been hard because there has been a bit of a lockout. Mm. It's kind of a establishment elite in both politics and the media, which should offend all of us as Americans, Mm. you know, because nobody's supposed to appoint themselves gatekeepers. Right. To say who in, who isn't a long shot. First of all, Trump's president. Right. That predicting who can win. And also 
how are we going to get new ideas if you won't let people with new ideas in mm-hmm. to the public space? So I think that's changing. And I didn't think it would be easy. And it's one of the reasons I'm grateful to be here with you. But it's an interesting way that the status quo protects itself and perpetuates right. itself, including, by the way, you co-opting disruptive language. Mm-hmm. That's been interesting to watch. Oh, well, we'll take, yeah, that love thing she's saying about work. So we'll use that. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I think is so interesting in watching you is that the specificity of your understanding of policy rivals everyone else in this field. As I've watched you in New Hampshire in particular, Mm -hmm. it is clear that you've been preparing for this for years, that you are not speaking in generalities about love. You know, you have a dollar figure ready to go on a reparations policy. So when you are in, are you finding that people respect the depth of knowledge and the not just enthusiasm, but the seriousness and the gravity of of what you're running for? You learn on a campaign like this that there are two categories. There's the dog and pony show, and then there's what's really happening with voters. So the dog and pony show is whether Time Magazine puts your picture with the rest of them or whether MSNBC or CNN mentions you, right? And that's very significant because it affects the ethers. But it's a different universe than what's going on when you're actually on the ground talking to people, voters in these early primary states particularly, and also the local and state media. Mm -hmm. It's a whole different thing. So, yes, it affects the ethers, that dog and pony show, and it affects fundraising. You know, it's, I'm not minimizing its significance, but the real profundity and the real essence of it all is when you're, when you're talking to voters. And yes, absolutely, my answer is yes. I mean, when I was at two universities yesterday, when I'm speaking to the ACLU today, uh, today when I yesterday morning was on New Hampshire Public Radio, that's where it's really going on. And absolutely, I feel heard. I do. That's that's why I'm I'm in this. I'm I'm I feel heard. You know, when you start an exploratory campaign, because I don't know if you know, I did an exploratory campaign, and mm-hmm. then you do a regular, mm-hmm. and you do an exploratory to see. You know, I'm going to go out on a limb here. Is there anybody here? Because if there's not, I'm going to back up now. We're living in an extraordinary moment, and the American people are not stupid. We're not children. We're adults. But we're treated by the political system like we're children and we're talked to like we're children. And I think that this campaign is an adult campaign. Mm. And I'm submitting to the American people a campaign based not just on what I can do for you, but also what together we can do for our country and what we can do for the world. And I think these are serious times and it demands the attention of serious people. And everybody has it within us to be serious. I have it my whole career for the last 35 years. It's not dumbed down spirituality, Mm. however much people want to describe it that way, who've actually never read my books or heard me talk. And same with this. But I appreciate when people talk to me like I'm smart. It makes me smart. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, you, you sort of respond in life to what you're called to. Well, let's talk about some serious issues, some of the enormous challenges that we'll be facing the next president. Yeah. The president just decided to veto Congress's action under the War Powers Act regarding the war in Yemen. And I would love to know, it's impossible, I think, before your commander in chief to fully understand what your approach will be. But talk to us about your guiding lights on our foreign policy. Well, 
the one you mentioned is a prime example of America's complete sacrifice of moral leadership. For the sake of $100 billion arms sale, the president had us and has had us and continues to have us in a what Mike Pompeo, our secretary of state, called a strategic partnership with the Saudi Arabians. And with this strategic partnership, i.e. $100 billion farm sale, we have been giving them the aerial support without which they could not prosecute this war in Yemen. Now, tens of thousands of people have died, starved, many of them children whose pictures are all over the Internet. Mike Pompeo's response to this is that you can have strategic partnerships with people who do not share your values. No, you can't. That means you've sacrificed your values. Now, I was raised to believe I mean, most Americans were raised to believe, except some younger Americans who maybe don't even remember a time when we were raised to believe that Americans were the good guys. And Americans stood for moral values, moral values and democratic values and deep humanitarian Western liberal values throughout the world. That's what we stood for. I don't think the world was ever naive enough to think we always made it. Mm-hmm. But even when there was a gap, our obvious effort to try to aspire to it was clear enough. Today, that's like a joke, a sad, tragic joke. The Dalai Lama said to me, people of the world do not see Americans as a champion of democracy anymore. So to reclaim our moral leadership, and as you mentioned, it was a bipartisan repudiation of the president's policy It was a a bipartisan repudiation, but unfortunately, yesterday he vetoed Congress's repudiation. And so it is the sacrifice of our moral values that now needs to be repudiated. And if I'm president, a world-class humanitarian and diplomat will be our new secretary of state. And quickly, the first secretary of state in this administration, we all remember, was an ex-CEO of Exxon. Says it all. Secretary of state who should be leading the great humanitarian and diplomatic efforts, is a guy whose 30-year career has been how to increase multinational corporate profits around the world. I think that is so essential. And again, as somebody who's watched you, I think I always found your strength to show up in places. You know, I, I watched you primarily on the Oprah show growing up, watched it every single day. And you always... You came from such authority, but you were not afraid to push people and to say hard things. I never perceived you as I'm just going to make you feel better ever. Like it was always we're going to this is some hard stuff. We're here to do hard things and to talk about hard things. And I think we need that type of moral leadership so badly in the political space. But my sense is that there are so many people and I'm wondering if you're seeing this, that they're in such a space of want and fear because of income inequality, because of all these social justice issues, that it's like it's a struggle to hear that message. It's a struggle to say it's time to do hard things as Americans and to assert our moral leadership because they feel like they can't get a break or catch a breath. And so there you I mean, I know I don't need to talk to you about people acting out of fear and scarcity like you are an expert on that. And so in this space, where we're trying to motivate voters, where we're trying to push the conversation and push policy in new spaces, when people feel so threatened, how do we assert that moral leadership? What what specific skills will you bring to that sort of emotional story we're telling and narrative that we're struggling with inside political campaigns? I'm having the same conversation 
in terms of transforming the country that I have when talking about transforming the individual. Mm-hmm. That a country has to take a serious moral inventory. That a country has to uh, to admit and acknowledge the exact nature of its character defects. That a country has to recognize the places where we're not who we say we are. And that if we do those things, if we do that work, which as you said is not always easy, but mm-hmm. if we do it, miracles happen. If we do it, trajectories become resets and the future does not have to be like the past. Now, when you say some people can't hear that, there's some people who, because they live in survival, can't hear that. Mm-hmm. There's some mm-hmm. people because they who live lives based in greed don't want to hear that. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. that's what elections are about. It's about, well, which which one says we're going to go this way? Remember, this is a country who actually elected Al Gore. Mm-hmm. Voted for Al Gore. This country elected Obama twice, and this country, three million more people voted for Hillary Clinton, plus the Russians got involved, plus James Comey got involved. So right, right now we have tyranny by the minority. The mean-spiritedness that is the face of so much domestic and international policy being promulgated by this, by this president does not represent the consciousness of the majority of the American people. So let's remember, we had a perfect storm in this last presidential election. And I don't think we should conclude from it that so many Americans are loath to having a deep conversation. And for that matter, I don't think that the Democratic Party should pretend to itself that it has been having a seriously Mm. deep conversation all the time. So actually, we don't know if that might work, do we? It's so true. And I know that to be like logically true, but it makes me feel better to hear you say it. <laughs> we, that's what an election is about. Yeah. And that's what supporting candidates is about. There are far more people who love than hate in this country. But those who hate, hate with conviction. And conviction is a force multiplier. Those who lead with fear are organized and effective and strategized today. What we need is for those of us who love to be as convicted in our beliefs as those who fear and hate are convicted in theirs. We have too many people who love, but with moral equivocation or with, yeah, I believe that, but it can't win. Even though George, uh, even though Trump is president, so who's to say who can win? So many people who say, yeah, that's true, but, you know, do, do Trump supporters say, yeah, he's right, but. <laughs> He didn't get here. He didn't get here because people said, "Yeah, I like him," but they said, "Yeah, I like him," and they went and did what they needed to do to try to make it happen. So lovers need to get some spine in this country. Mm-hmm. You know, every time there is a tragedy, everybody pulls out their Martin Luther King quotes. Everybody tweaks them. Everybody puts them on their screensavers that only love can cast out hate. But then, as soon as the grief is over, the mourning period is over. We're back to our lives. When Martin Luther King said only love can cast out hate, I don't think he meant clearly given his life. He did not mean for that just to be something that we look to after the horrible things have happened. He meant for those things and lived for those things to become the core of a new political movement, which would then prevent the horrible things and to ameliorate the horrible things. So my campaign, and you say, how am I going to? I'm not I'm not strategizing here. The political force that emerges from love is more like the Eastern concept of Shakti. It's something that emerges from the quantum field when enough people have an aha moment. Mm. And I don't think it's about socioeconomics either. 
my experience in, in professionally and personally would lead me to believe no socioeconomic group has a monopoly on values or on intelligence. It seems that our addiction problem as a nation parallels a lot of what you just said, that socioeconomics are often thought of as a root cause, but addiction is spanning the gamut in the American people. And I saw some very moving exchanges between you and voters about that in New Hampshire. I'm wondering what kinds of conversations are you having and where in our national prioritization do you put that drug problem? It's huge today. It's huge today. When I was young, because I grew up in the kind of, you know, sex, drugs, rock and roll generation, and certainly we were loose about drugs, but we always saw heroin as a line. Mm. You didn't go there. And you have high school students today who see heroin as just another drug they might take this weekend. That's emergency time. I did spend time yesterday. I'm in New Hampshire right now, when New Hampshire is one of the most hardest hit of states dealing with opioid addiction. My views are that, first of all, obviously, we have to change it from a criminal issue to a public health issue. What they have in, in New Hampshire and in a lot of places you know, are these safe houses, the safe house situation where somebody can go to, let's say, a fire station. The police will not be called. They will be sent to rehab. I think we should have 24-hour, 12-step programming available on cable television. Somebody lives in some rural community. They might need to drive 20 miles to get to an AA meeting. I think AA programming should be 24 hours, not only on the internet, but on cable TV. The, the, the airwaves belong, belong to, to us. right? I think one of the dirty little secrets that America needs to face, and my campaign is all about knowing, you know, in The Course in Miracles, it says you can't bring the light to the darkness. You have to bring the darkness to the light. You, you heal societally and personally the same way you detox in your body. Stuff has to come up in order to get out. So we have to face some things and then we can release them. And one of America's dirty little secrets is that the biggest drug dealer in America is Big Pharma. Mm -hmm. You know, our biggest, biggest addiction problem uh, stems from legal, legal drugs, legal right. pharmaceuticals. And there's been so much conversation, things like what's happened with the Sackler family, et cetera, Oxycontin. It's so corrupt. It's so dirty. And this is what happens when you have an F, you know, the just like we didn't ground the Boeing Max immediately, like China and all mm -hmm. these European countries mm -hmm. did. Why? Because our FAA is so in the pocket of Boeing. That it, that it was there to serve Boeing before it was there to serve the absolute highest standard of, of minimization of safety risk. I mean, obviously, they did once it was, you know, undeniable that there was a problem there. But the same has happened with our FDA. FDA is rather than the Food and Drug Administration being what it should be, which is an advocate first and foremost for our people and holding to the highest standard of risk minimization, it is dead in the hands of big pharma, food companies, et cetera. So that's a big one to really, they say they've clamped down. They say they've clamped down and they say they've clamped down with pharmacists, et cetera. But I've, I've heard too many stories just to friends who say, you know, I went through something and they gave me three of the pills, but then they said, well, do you want 10 more? Cause we'll give you 15 more or whatever. And also, and most importantly, we have to ask ourselves as a society, what is going on here? that so many thousands of people want out. What have we created? Because, you know, if you die of an opioid overdose, then whether it was a purposeful overdose or, or not, on some unconscious level, it was suicide because you knew what you were playing with. 
it was on some at least unconscious level. The pain is so great. I am willing to risk dying to get out of the pain. And that's something which can only be addressed. That's why my campaign is holistic and integrative. What that means is that can't just be somebody's going to go to Washington and fix it. That's like an equivalent of allopathic medicine that you don't take care of your body. You don't take care of your diet. You don't take care of your nutrition. You don't take care of your exercise. You don't take care of your lifestyle. But then if you get sick, which you almost inevitably will, you hope that a doctor, an allopathic doctor can just treat on the level of symptoms and eradicate or suppress the symptom. We need a complementary, integrative model of political and social healing. Every citizen is an immune cell. And it's got to be differences and changes made on the political level, but also on the personal level that each of us becomes more aware of our responsibility to be the light in the midst of darkness for whoever you might be talking to. You know, there is a man who is a volunteer here in New Hampshire, one of my volunteers. And I noticed he was a volunteer at all the events. So I, you know, Tom, thank you, blah, blah, blah. And he said, I'd like to talk to you for a few minutes, tell you my story and why I'm here. And I went up to him yesterday and I said, well, we have a few minutes. You want to do that? He said, I know how busy you are. I wrote you a letter. And this morning I read the letter and the experience of his life is so profound. And you would know it, you know, he's just this nice guy who's volunteering, right? And I was reminded of that quote. I don't know if it's Victor Hugo. I've seen it attributed to various people. Whenever you meet someone, know you're in the presence of a great war. Mm. So much more is going on with one individual life. I say in my lectures all the time, I've said, I want you right now to think of the most painful moment you've ever had in your life, the most painful situation you've ever had. And then I say, it is statistically reasonable to assume that the person sitting to your right has suffered that much too. It is statistically reasonable to assume the person to your left has suffered that much too. It is statistically reasonable to think that everyone in this room has suffered as much as you have. If we remember that, we're different people. You come from a different place. I read a quote from Emma Thompson, the actress, the other day, and she said something like, I shouldn't have to say this, but I like people who have suffered better. They tend to be kinder. Mm. So what she was speaking to is the level of compassion and kindness that emerges when we ourselves have either experienced our own heartbreak or borne witness to the heartbreak in others. It is that level. That's a sacred level. That's a level of depth. That's the level wisdom comes from. And we have to approach politics with that level of wisdom as much as we approach any other aspect of life. Because ultimately, is it going to be enough for you to gain wisdom and me to gain wisdom and for us to apply wisdom in our personal lives while the country acts insanely? Because mm -hmm. a country, the laws of cause and effect apply to our collective experience as much as to our personal experience. We're going to all get back what we put out, and so is mm -hmm. America. So what does that holistic approach look like with your administration? I'm assuming it's going to go beyond just cabinet secretaries. It's not going to just be policy solutions. Do you, have a, do you have something in mind about how to bring that holistic approach to your administration? What other institutions would you look to, I guess, is what I'm asking, too? One of the things, well, first of all, po policy is everything, and you can ask me about a specific policy. But an example of how I approach policy within a holistic perspective is, is this. I was saying to someone in my various talks, I think I even went there in my CNN town hall, 
yes, I want universal health care. I want a Medicare for all system, augmenting Obamacare. And if people want to keep their health and private health insurance, they can. Yes, I want to raise the minimum wage. Yes, I want to make public university or college available to everyone. And yes, I want I want to radically renegotiate, if not cancel all those college loans. However, there's a why to this. Mm. Yes, I want this massive infusion of economic hope and opportunity into the veins of our civilization, given that so many millions of people live in economic anxiety all the time. But there's a why to this. And that is because I want the social contract in this country to change. I want citizens to feel that the government is on your side. In our Declaration of Independence, it says that God gave all men inalienable rights to pursuit of happiness and that governments are instituted to secure those rights. Today, policies of our government cap people's dreams. If you advocate for short-term profits for multinational corporations at the expense of wealth creating opportunity for everybody else, then what you're doing is capping people's dreams because we all need to be able to survive, to have enough money on hand to just relax so that you can then spread your wings. How could you have started Pantsuit? Unless you had some capital. Right. I mean, there has to be infrastructure. You know, I mean, do mm-hmm. rich people talk about it? You know, Martin Luther King said, if they talk, uh, give it to the rich, they call it a subsidy. If they give it to the poor, they call it a handout. It's, right. it's, 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 it's having enough Somebody was talking to me the other day about the dignity of work. I said, how about the life-giving satisfaction of enough cash on hand to do what you need to do? Mm -hmm. And I was saying to these young people, I want you to have all those things. I don't want you to have to think about health care. I don't want you to have to think about college loans. I don't want you to have to think about how you're going to live. And in exchange for that, I want you to stand up and be the man that you're capable of being. I want you to be the woman you're capable of being as a mother, as a father, as a lover, as a friend, as a spouse, as a citizen, as an employee, as an employer. I want you to wake up every morning and ask, how can I be great? How can I get it done? How can I make it happen? I'm going to remove, as your president, I'm going to do everything possible to remove the shackles Remove Mm. the material shackles that keep you like this. But then I want you to feel a responsibility to soar for the sake of your country and for the sake of your world. So I think it's important that we realize democracy does not just give us rights. It gives us responsibilities as well. Mm -hmm. Now, when you say how are you going to do it, the bully pulpit is as important as any other aspect of of the president. The president Mm -hmm. is talking to you every day. The president is talking to you every day. And FDR, Franklin Roosevelt said, the primary role of the president is moral leadership. He said the the administrative aspects of the job are secondary. And so I think today, as much as we need a political mechanic, and thank you for acknowledging, I understand those issues. As much as we need a political mechanic, we need a political visionary even more. And this idea of the experience, experience, excuse me, anybody who thinks that somebody who has had two terms as a congressman, that that (laughs) gives them the elevated consciousness, the elevated (laughs) understanding and deep gravitas to lead a a nation. You know what? They don't know what congressmen do all day. (laughs) Anybody say, I don't think you know what congressmen do all day. 65% of your time is raising money. So this idea and, and experienced politicians, and I'm not saying experienced doesn't matter, but I have a lot of experience. There's different Mm. kinds of experience. And the experienced politician led us into Iraq. 
The experienced politician led us into Vietnam. The experienced politician got us to where we are. So the idea that only people whose careers are entrenched in the system that brought us into this ditch are the only ones we could possibly consider qualified to lead us out of the ditch is just, to me, preposterous. And it's gendered, too. It's very gendered. It's absolutely. It's gender on such a level. I'm assuming you're seeing a lot of that on the front lines. (laughs) But you don't see it once again. I don't see it with voters. And I see a lot of, I hear a lot of, I even see it in the press. Uh, You know, it's happening. It's happening slower because I'm not given the break by certain outlets. But I see it in the local press. I hear it from people and people who are very well placed within the political establishments in these states. The equivalent of, well, I went in expecting one thing. And I have to tell you, Mm -hmm. I got different. So the exposure is, is what matters. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year is going by so quickly, and I had a little bit of a moment of panic about it this week. I thought to myself, I'm losing track of time. It's going so fast. It's going to be December before I know it. My kids are growing up, and I just kind of was spinning out. And I stopped, and I closed my eyes, and I pictured my last therapist, who I haven't seen since the end of 2020. But I remember the way he talked me through these issues and I sort of channeled his energy and put my feet on the ground and thought this is just how time feels now and there's nothing wrong with that or right about it. It just is. But those skills that I learned in therapy are so important to helping me take a second to celebrate what's going right and decide what I want to adjust for the rest of the year. If you're thinking of starting therapy, which I cannot recommend enough, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot slash Pantsuit. Summer is here. Pack your bag with sunscreen, your emotional support water bottle, and that steamy bee treat. But wait, don't stop there. This year, there's a new kind of essential that's right at your fingertips. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods, goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut. To explore the bounds of your pleasure, new content is released every week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. Dipsy offers a modern approach to romance through high quality and captivating audio fiction. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. The second most stressful thing after planning a trip is packing for it. This is true. This is a true story. I have just told you the clothes I have don't fit. They don't go together the way I want them to. I'm missing some essential piece. And then I discovered Quince. It's my go-to for high quality vacation essentials. Like this premium European linen dress that's going to get us all through the heat wherever we're traveling. Blouses and shorts from $30. Washable silk tops. 
premium luggage options, and so much more. All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than their similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to all of us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. I got big plans for my Quince chiffon pleated skirt in japan they like a loose flowy look over there to battle the heat i will be adopting that strategy with that skirt pack your bags with high quality essentials from quince go to quince.com slash pantsuit for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns that's q u i n c e dot com slash pantsuit to get free shipping and 365 day returns quince.com slash pantsuit I love what you said about your whys Mm -hmm. and about the social contract. And whenever you're talking about that kind of massive cultural change, I had a really enlightening experience early in my career. I was talking about cultural change and I said something flippant like, well, but I understand Rome wasn't built in a day. And the person I was talking to said, oh, you can absolutely build Rome in a day. What your struggle is, is that you have to tear down these ruins first And dealing with what is is much harder than imagining what will be. And that leads me to I want to ask you to talk for a second about America's kind of original sins and how you think about racism, how you think about indigenous people and the the kinds of issues that we try to layer on top of with policy to fix, but we never really get to the heart of. Well, as I said earlier, a nation has to take a more a fearless moral inventory. A nation has to admit the exact nature of its character defects. Racism has been a character defect with us uh, from the very beginning. So in 1776, when the signers signed the Declaration of Independence, on one hand, they were risking their lives to lay down the most enlightened principles of infinite hope and possibility that had ever infused the founding of a nation. At the same time, 41 of the signers were slave owners. So that dichotomy has been with us from the beginning. And it has been with us generation after generation, including ours, no less than any other, where there are those whose hearts are ablaze on fire with the possibilities offered by those principles, all men created equal, all men given unalienable rights, government here to secure those rights. But there have always been, and there still are, Those who think, no, we're not going to be doing that. Mm -hmm. And every generation plays it out. And every generation, think of every generation writing its chapter in an ongoing novel. Now, the narrative of American history is that we do tend over time to course correct. We tend over time to get it right. So we had slavery, but then we had abolition. We had suppression of women, but then we had feminism and the women's suffragette movement. We had institutionalized white supremacy and segregation, and then we had the civil rights movement. So race, you've got two, and I don't don't think that the average American is a racist, but I do think that the average American is vastly undereducated about the history of race in the United States. We had two and a half centuries of slavery that was followed by another hundred years of what we would call today domestic terrorism, lynchings, domestic terrorism, Ku Klux Klan. That's domestic terrorism, institutionalized white supremacy and segregation. At the end of the Civil War, there were four to five million slaves. And even though they were promised 40 acres and a mule for every former slave family of four, 
Most of the time that was not given. Most of the time it was given, it was then taken away. Mm-hmm. Plus the Southern legislatures passed what were called the Black Code Laws, which guaranteed subpar economic, social, and political opportunity for black people. This horror of that hundred years on top of the two and a half years of century was not fundamentally altered until the civil rights movement. In 1964, with the passage of the Civil Rights Act, segregation was dismantled. 65, the Voting Rights Act ensured equal voting opportunities and access to the polls of black people. What we did not get to yet, and we simply need to get to, it's still undone, is economic restitution. Right. Economic restitution for two and a half years of slavery, two and a half centuries of slavery, a hundred years after that, of suppressed economic and social opportunity. The Germans have paid $89 billion to Jewish organizations since World War II. In 1988, we signed the Civil Liberties, American Civil Liberties Act signed by Ronald Reagan that said to every surviving prisoner from the Japanese internment camps in World War II, we'll give you between 20 and $22,000. So by the mid 20th century, the idea of reparations was not considered in any way outrageous. You think of what you've taken to people and what you owe them. So the, the reparations to me, and the reason it's more important than quote unquote race-based policies is race-based policies as a concept leaves open the question of whose fault it is. And a reparations carries moral and spiritual force because it is an inherent acknowledgement of a wrong that has been done and a debt to be paid. This is why restorative justice works and people are so into it these days because it this is your, your holistic politics. It's not just mm-hmm. a policy up here. It's a change in here. Right. As Martin Luther King said, we need quantitative changes in our circumstances and we need qualitative changes in our hearts. And with Native Americans, the same. The, you know, we need, we, in 1863, we, we signed a treaty to give the Black Hills of South Dakota to the Sioux. It's time to give the Black Hills of South Dakota to the Sioux. And there are uh, many situations of profound poverty, lack of capacity to address criminal justice issues, even when they're in regard to people who come onto tribal lands and, and, and commit the most heinous acts of violence against women. Most of the reparative work being done, however, in what's called today decolonizing, has to do with legal, legal actions, lawsuits, which I would certainly support on behalf of tribal entities to seek justice and on that level, reparations from the U.S. government. I'm reading a book right now called Stamped from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America. It's by Ibram Kendi, and it's so good. And it starts with the Puritan. It goes all the way through Black Lives Matter. And his sort of fundamental thesis is that the reason that economic reparation, that economic inequality has maintained itself is because we think racist ideas from the policymakers lead to racist policies, and that's how we end up in this discriminatory pattern. He's like, it's the opposite. (laughs) It's the policies. It starts at the top with a maintaining of economic status quo, and then you use the racist ideas to justify that, and that leads to ignorance and hatred sort of as the policies come down. He's like, they don't start. It starts with that economic status quo, that people want to maintain their economic status power, and they use racism to justify it. And that's why we still see that breakup, and that's why reparations are so important. And that's why I'm running. Yep. Because you can't leave political change 
Mm-mm. out of uh, factoring and calculating real societal change. And when people yeah. say, when people say, oh, you know, sometimes under this spurious counterfeit notion of spirituality, people say, oh, the change doesn't come from there. Well, actually, sometimes it does. Mm-hmm. Culture always wins. Culture always wins. And if you don't address that, I think that's what's so powerful about your candidacy. And that's what we hear from people all the time. I mean, literally one of the chapters in our book, I don't know if we've sent you one, but we will. I'd it, love to. Yeah. I mean, it's called Find Your Why. And the people are so hungry for that deeper conversation because they know politics is about values on some sort of subconscious or conscious level. They know we're talking about very big important things. They know it's about how people feel within a culture, how people feel within a society, and that if we don't have that bigger conversation, politics can be an amazing venue to talk about values. I can't agree with you more. We're so aligned. You know, Gandhi said politics should be sacred, and Mm. he didn't mean it should be religious, dogmatic, doctrinaire. He meant it should be exactly what you just said, a deep conversation about things that matter. And it has become in the hands of the dominant political establishment so superficial. It's consumer-based. And then it has the audacity, that establishment has the audacity to try to marginalize people seeking to bring in greater depth. Mm -hmm. When greater depth is the only way, a conversation of greater depth as to what your purpose is. Mm-hmm. What's the purpose of my life? What's the purpose of a demo- of a democracy? What's the purpose of U.S. domestic policy? What's the purpose of U.S. foreign policy? Is it just to sh- serve short-term profits for gun manufacturers, health insurance companies, big pharma, defense contractors, and oil companies? Is that the, oh, is that our bottom line purpose? Or is it that all beings might thrive and that there might be genuine peace and prosperity? to create a political space where we can enter into that conversation and that depth of conversation. And going back to the first thing that you asked me, do I feel that people are open to that? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Earth Breeze Eco Sheets look just like a dryer sheet, but it's ultra-concentrated, liquidless laundry detergent. It's the best of all worlds. Earth Breeze is tough on stains and odors while being kind to the planet and your skin, so it's good for sensitive skin. It reduces plastic waste. All of these things are true and amazing, but let's get to the heart of it. Y'all know I have a laundry system. You know it revolves around training children as young as possible to do their own laundry. Earthbreeze sheets feels like they were invented for this. Because littles maybe sometimes struggle with those big, heavy jugs. Or maybe you worry about the pods, but here we go. Here we go, y'all. Earth Breeze Eco Sheets. It's like the perfect solution. A child as young as two can handle these sheets. And even with toddlers, like you can get them involved. And this is a way to get them helping with laundry even before they could do it themselves. Ugh, gotta love it so much. Right now, our listeners can receive 40% off Earth Breeze just by going to earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit. That's earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit to cut out single-use plastic in your laundry room and claim 40% off your subscription. earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit. We do quite a bit of hosting here at the Silvers household, and I think there is nothing that completes a table for dinner. A beautiful loaf of bread and wild grain has made that so simple because they send gorgeous loaves of sourdough bread. Lots of spins on the ingredients, but always just this fantastic, high quality, easy to bake in 25 minutes or less from frozen bread that turns out perfectly every single time. I also have to tell you about the free croissants for life that come with your wild grain orders. And those croissants make the morning, your brunch, 
maybe your late night snack, flaky, and like you're sitting in a French cafe and they're just perfect every single time. That's what I love about Wild Grain. It's easy, it's consistent, it's fully customizable. It is the first ever Bake From Frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. For a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. You heard me, free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit, or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing, you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problem solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. We would be remiss if we let you go without asking you about a headline that is coming out. This podcast is airing will be Friday after the release of the Mueller report. And I want to ask this in a way that I think honors the holistic nature of your candidacy. Whenever I have to pray in public, which is something that makes me very nervous, I go to your writing because you so obviously are able to simultaneously embody the human experience and transcend it. And I think that that uniquely positions you to understand sort of the daily trauma inflicted on the American people by the breathless coverage of this investigation for the past two years, by the fact that our institutional trust is so low wherever you fall on the political spectrum about how this has been conducted and how it's rolling out now. And so I just want to ask how President Williamson would help restore that institutional trust and help America kind of heal from this trauma. There's a line in the Bible, what man intends for evil, God intends for good. Mm. And I think that this presidency has been an awakener. Perfect example, William Barr's press conference this morning. Mm -hmm. A lot of people realize, well, he's really just Trump's lackey, isn't he? Mm -hmm. He's really just a political operative, isn't he? Trump said he was looking for his Roy Cohen, and he found him, didn't he? As opposed to an attorney general, the highest law officer in the land, standing for the law. And so a lot of people who might not have ever thought before about the purpose of the attorney general go, wow, that's what happens when it's really not a nation of laws, it's a nation of just men getting what they want. That's not what democracy is. So sometimes in life, it's when you see what's not supposed to be that you go, 
that has helped me see what it is supposed to be. I knew somebody who worked in a situation where they felt that their boss, there was a lack of integrity in the kind of business dealings that were going on. And I said, you know, that will serve you in your life because throughout your professional career, that that informed you of how sometimes how it's not supposed to be Mm -hmm. is what informs us about what is supposed to be. So a nation of laws is not just a phrase. And the fact that the Mueller report was written, but then it was turned over to Barr and it's not being turned over to Congress and the Barr gets up there and he just opines about it rather than a, a set of legal principles that guide our actions as a country. And this is this is a great history lesson, you know. This mm-hmm. is a great lesson in what democracy is supposed to be. So my hope is that all of us are taking in not just what's happening, but what it means what's happening. And that's the worst danger of this presidency. The worst danger of this presidency is not just the specific actions that he's taking, because Hopefully there will be a Democratic president in 2020 and we will repeal so much of what he's done. And as soon as there is a Democratic Senate, I mean, there are two equal co-equal branches of government. It's that he has corrupted the moral values of a democracy and has mocked them and has mocked the deep humanitarian values that provide goodness. We can't be great if we're not good. So the holistic nature of all this, as you said yourself, it's been traumatizing. We, we, it, it, but the way I look at it is if a president so out of alignment and an administration so out of alignment with our moral values has been traumatizing for this country, think how beneficial and ameliorative and healing mm-hmm. it will be to have a president who is so clear about the moral and humanitarian alignment that must be brought to bear in the United States again. I think there will be a sigh of relief and deep gratitude on the part of many. This is what we talk about all the time. The value of having this type of conversation specifically around politics is it allows everybody to take off their jerseys, to step out of that polariz- the intense polarization that we all talk so much about, that the media is very obsessed about, That is that is hugely problematic, I think, for our democratic process. I read a quote the other day that was it said, forgiveness isn't forgetting the sin. It's just taking your hand off the other person's neck. And I feel like pushing this conversation into values and moral leadership would hopefully help us take our hands off each other's necks. And I know you're running in a Democratic primary, but I'm wondering what are you seeing any sort of are you hearing from people from the other side of the aisle? Are you having any conversations about that polarization? Are you seeing any any ever been anybody out there ready to have a different kind of conversation that would take it out of that purely partisan environment? It's why I think I'm the best candidate to beat Trump, mm. because a lot of conservatives and they've told me this, they might not agree with certain policy positions, but they recognize and appreciate that I honor certain values. And that's what people really want to feel. They want to feel acknowledged for their values. They want to feel heard. A lot of times we think it's only about the issues. But the part of the brain that rationally analyzes issues is not the same part of the brain that decides who to vote for. Mm -hmm. But it's very difficult to vote for someone who you feel does not acknowledge your bottom line values. And also, I'm here in New Hampshire where a third of the voters are independents. Mm -hmm. So you better believe I meet a lot of people who realize there's a conversation beyond just this or that. Look how many people said they wouldn't vote for Hillary 
they would vote for Trump over Hillary, but would have gladly voted for Bernie over Trump. Mm. Millions of people said that. Yeah. I mean, the polls showed that. So clearly what particularly Democratic politicians sometimes think of as the issues aren't always the deeper issue. And in A Course in Miracles, it says people hear you on the level that you speak to them from. So I think the level of honor we can give to each other creates a space where we can have all kinds of disagreement. It's called honorable debate. But, you know, Martin Luther King said you have very little morally persuasive power with people who can feel your underlying contempt. But if you get to that space, that sweet spot, you know, Rumi's beyond good and bad, right or wrong, there is a field, I'll meet you there. Mm -hmm. In that place, we don't have to agree. Even disagreement can be a creative process. Oh, that's so true. Sarah started by talking with you about the Goop interview you did. And so I want to end there because an aspect of that that we talked about for days amongst ourselves after we heard you say it was when the interviewer said, gosh, everything's just exhausting. And you said, no. We are not exhausted. The people in Selma were not exhausted. And and you talked about the fortitude and the power that we have as individual citizens. So what is your call to action for people who've heard you today and are hearing on a deep level what you're saying and are interested in being part of a better conversation about politics? Thank you. Go to Marianne2020.com, sign up, volunteer, donate. I need about 13,000. I don't know what it'll be when this is aired, but I still need about 13,000 more unique donors to get onto the DNC debate stage. Money obviously makes a tremendous difference. Volunteering, telling your friends, talking about it on Facebook, sharing this podcast. People know how to create buzz when they want to. Mm -hmm. So I would simply say, if you do feel moved, do whatever you feel moved to do about it. <laughs> Love it. We hope y'all enjoyed that conversation as much as we did. It was truly such an honor to talk with Marianne Williamson. We will be back in your ears on Tuesday discussing the Mueller report. And until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Dylan Garvin produces Pantsuit Politics every week. Thanks for making us sound better, Dylan. Elise Knapp is our managing director, which means we could not make it without her scheduling, organization, feedback, and creativity. Thank you, Elise. We couldn't make Pantsuit Politics without support from our listeners. Go to patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics to learn how you can receive more nuance and help us make the show. Special thanks to our executive producers who have committed to supporting us in a major life-giving way. Tracy Putoff, Tim Miller, Cherry Haas, Sarah's husband, Nicholas Holland, and my husband, Chad Silvers. Our theme music is composed and performed by Dante Lima. The music under our ads is composed and performed by Dylan Garvin. Learn more about our lives, live events that we're involved in, and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. And connect with members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.